Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So we're continuing this week uh, series in which we're exploring the summary I gave of what I call a practical theology of uh, progress towards maturity in Christ. That was something which I went through a few episodes ago now, um, originally at the Men's Discipleship uh, Breakfast here at All Saints, and um, uh, then it was broadcast on the podcast. Uh, and then since then, uh, Wednesday night Bible studies, I've been um, going into a little bit more detail, paragraph by paragraph, through that big picture. And uh, this last Wednesday, a couple of days ago, we were at it again, so to speak. And I want to just give you a few more bits and pieces that pertain to the subject we were talking about this time around, which is, well, I, had, I headed it, the maturity of Christ. And the point I wanted to make was that the maturity for which we are to strive uh, as believers in Christ is first and foremost a maturity that he has as the perfect and complete man, and then secondly, the maturity that we have by grace, by our union with him. Uh, so let me just, at uh, the risk of repeating myself um, uh, later, when you get to listen to the Bible study and the discussion we had there, which was really good, um, I had some great comments as ever, and um, uh, it was encouraging for me. I hope it was encouraging for the people involved, and I hope it will be encouraging for you. But the risk of repeating myself, I want to read the paragraph um, that we're dealing with in that Bible study. Then I want to make a couple of additional comments about it, feed some extra biblical material into it so you can see uh, a little bit more about what I have in mind and what it seems to me Scripture says on this subject. So here's the paragraph that we were looking at this week, and you'll be listening to a discussion of shortly. Scripture teaches that this maturity is found in Christ. It is his in the first instance because he possesses and exhibits it perfectly as the perfect man, the last Adam. It is ours by his grace because he has bestowed it upon us as a gift by the Spirit. We are called to make it increasingly ours by striving to live repentant and faithful lives animated by the Spirit. And we are assured that we may expect to make meaningful, significant progress towards increasing maturity if we do so. There we are, that's the summary. Uh, and really I focus on the first two clauses in the second sentence. This maturity first is Christ's because he possesses in and exhibits it perfectly and completely as the last Adam, the perfect, complete man. And then secondly, it's ours by his grace because he has bestowed it upon us as a gift by the Spirit. And the, what I want to do just for the next few minutes before you jump into the Bible study and the, uh, the rest of the podcast is to share with you uh, a couple of thoughts about uh, a structural theme in Christian theology, especially as uh, Paul the Apostle expounds it in Romans and Colossians and in other letters, but which is widely neglected uh, in modern uh, evangelical Reformed thinking when it comes to our pursuit of godliness and growth in faithfulness as Christians. Uh, basically, the, the way that we think about the motivation for and the empowerment for our lives of faithfulness as Christians is in grave danger of being skewed. Uh, if we're not careful, we pursue the right thing for the wrong reason and with the wrong motivation and with the wrong understanding. We pursue uh, growth in faithfulness, but either out of a sense of indebtedness to God or purely out of a sense of gratitude to him, or perhaps worst of all, as out of a sense of guilt uh, uh, remorse for our wickedness and desperately trying to make ourselves less in need of the forgiveness that Christ freely offers us. All those are, in varying degrees, wrong motivations for 
the pursuit of godliness. It's not that you can't find them anywhere in the Bible. Of course, you can find the motive of gratitude. Uh, of course, you can find uh, the motive of uh, the sense of remorse that we should have for our sins, driving us to greater godliness and so on. Uh, but it's very far from the case that those are the controlling and structurally central motives for our godliness um, in the Christian life. Rather, the central motive for our striving for Christ-likeness as believers in Scripture is that we are already one with him, and we are to live out that which we already have by virtue of our union with him. Now, this is something we're going to explore in more detail in the um, Bible study that will follow in a few minutes' time, but I just want to mention a couple of other biblical texts which relate to this theme and which highlight it in different ways. And um, if you've thought about this yourself, especially if you've read um, works uh, of uh, Richard Gaffin, particularly, he's talked about this, or at least the theological substructure to it in his work, Resurrection and Redemption. But there are other works that talk about this. Calvin's Institutes, particularly, is uh, architecturally structured uh, by this uh, recognition of this theme. But um, Romans 6 is the first passage I want to turn you to. And notice that the motive for our pursuit of holiness and Christlikeness in this text is nothing to do with gratitude and certainly nothing to do with guilt and remorse for um, what we may have done in the past. Let me just read it to you. Uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Well, here follows the motive that Paul adduces for why we should by no means continue in sin that grace may abound. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, there's a thought. Uh, Paul's point seems to be that something has happened in us or to us that makes the continuance in kind of uncaring and uh, blasé ungodliness just unthinkable. We've died to sin, he says. Now, what does that mean? Well, he carries on. Uh, do you not know, he says, by way of explanation of this died to sin theme, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's how we died to sin. We were baptized which means that in some sense we were united with Christ in his death and we were baptized into his death. And that death which we've undergone by virtue of our oneness or union with him is a death insofar as sin is concerned. We've put sin behind us, just like death puts life behind us. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. With what purpose? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So that's the structure of Paul's argument. It's not you should be jolly grateful that Jesus has died for you and therefore try and be gracious and godly and faithful. And it's certainly not you should feel really guilty that your sin made Christ's death necessary and therefore try not to do any more damage than you already have. The motive is that sin ought to be unthinkable because you've died and been raised to new life. You have made in yourself a decisive transition from one existential state to another. You've done that through your union with Christ in his death and resurrection, and just as he died and left one life behind him and then received new glorified life back, so you've died and left your sinful life behind you so that you can receive this renewed life back. For, he says, verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He goes on explaining, I'll just read these, these verses because you know what they say, but they're uh, worth just pursuing in this context. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
for one who's died has been set free from sin. You see the logic again. Now, we've, we've died in this sense, being one with Christ in his death through our baptism into him and therefore into his death. We've died with the purpose that we should leave behind our slavery to sin. And we have. The one who's died has been set free. You are actually free from sin. You are actually one with the risen, mature, perfect, complete, last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died for sin, uh, died to sin, sorry, once. Let me try that again. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So the imperative in regards to our lives comes here. You must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we need to live lives of faithfulness out of a recognition of what we've already become in Christ. We've died to that old sinful way of life, been raised with Christ, and we must consider that to have happened. We must recognize and live in the light of that transition that we have already undergone. We are different people now that Christ has died because we died with him. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Don't present the members of your body to ungodliness for uh, instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as instruments of, for righteousness. And that begins basically the long exhortation exhortatory or hortatory I think is a technical word the long exhortation section from verse 12 onwards in which he's saying okay this because of this transition that you've undergone in Christ you're a new man a new woman you are mature complete dead and buried and resurrected in Christ now the call that he issues to us is not you should be grateful or you should feel terrible but you are new and you should count yourself to be renewed and live accordingly so that existential transition that we've undergone is the ground of our pursuit of maturity in Christ. And it's important in this context, just taking a step back and thinking of the broader picture, I don't want this um, challenge and encouragement to pursue maturity in Christ just to be like an even bigger stick to beat you up with. That's not the aim of the exercise here. What I'm not doing is trying to find yet another way to make you feel terrible. What I'm trying to do is to show you in this context that in Christ we have all that we need and we are all that we need to be in order to live lives of increasing maturity in him and it's in one sense it's a tremendously optimistic picture it's one that I've I'm not sure I've always done a very good job of trying to articulate clearly in the past I'm going to keep trying banging my head against that brick wall trying to get the message across uh, I try some new uh, scriptural angles on it in the Bible study which you'll hear in a moment but this is perhaps one of the most famous texts which we didn't have time to get onto on Wednesday night so I thought I'd mention it now just briefly one other which has the same kind of inner logic to it uh, Colossians chapter 3 and this again is famous um, my wife Nicole and I had this um, uh, actually no, later in chapter 3 we had this read at our wedding but um, anyway chapter 3 verse 1 immediately precedes our wedding passage if then you have been raised with Christ Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now just look, notice the logic of this. First, the if, at the beginning of verse 1, the if then you have been raised with Christ has the force of uh, since then you have been raised with Christ. And I think that's how it's translated in one, one or two um, translations, maybe the New International Version translates it like that, if I remember rightly. 
Um, now, you could argue over the Greek grammar, what kind of conditional it is. I'll leave the grammarians and the Greek geeks to uh, sort that one out. Um, drop me an email if you're interested. But um, certainly, theologically and logically, it has the force of a since. That is to say, the condition, our being raised with Christ, has been fulfilled because of what Paul says elsewhere, not just in this letter, but elsewhere, like Ephesians and Romans and so on and so forth. In other words, given that we have been raised with Christ, we are to set our minds on things that are above and not on earthly things. We are to seek to instantiate in our lives here on earth the values of heaven, so to speak. Bring heaven to earth. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And again, he says the same sort of thing as in Romans. You have died, verse 3. And your life is hidden with Christ, with God. You are recipients of this new life. And then, therefore, from verse 5 onwards, there's a bunch of things that you're supposed to put to death because you have died. Put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and so on. Put all those things to death because you've died. Because you've died in relation to them. And then put on, from verse 12 onwards, and this was the passage that Nicole and I had at our wedding. Put on, then, as God's chosen people, chosen ones, holy and beloved, these heaven-oriented virtues, bring these from the holy right hand of God where Christ is seated down to earth and instantiate them in your life. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Now, what's the reason for mentioning all that? Well, just to add to this overarching theme that I want to explore, that I have explored just last Wednesday, which we're about to go into in this podcast, if you listen on, the, the crucial architectural claim, architectural that is from the point of view of the structure of the theological framework I'm trying to set out for you, that our maturity in Christ and our pursuit of it flows from what Christ has already done in himself and therefore what he's done in us. We are transformed, we are renewed, and our task is simply, simply I say simply, um, our task is to instantiate day by day in our lives the new men and women that we are in him. In other words, it's not a grasping for something beyond our reach or a yearning for something on the basis of extrinsic motivations like gratitude or guilt or fear or something. It is rather seeking to live out the character of the men and women who we already are, to be true to ourselves, actually. I mean, you could, I recognize that as a, as a an oft corrupted uh, way of thinking where being true to yourself means being true to however you think you are, like whatever gender you think you are, or whatever aspirations you think you should have. But to be true to yourself in the true Christian sense means to be true to what Christ has said about you and to what he has done in you. And what he said about you is your mind and what he's done in you has put sin to death and raised you to new life. So be true to what he said about you. Romans 6, Colossians 3. Listen on, you'll get a bit of John Calvin and then you'll get a whole pile of the book of Hebrews, which is one book which is certainly about the maturity of Christ and of his people in him. Anyway, enough by way of extra stuff. I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. The Lord bless you and see you soon. Bye for now. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for this opportunity that you've given us to gather around your word and with one another. How many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world would love to have an opportunity like this? And here we are, not quite taking it for granted, but uh, conscious that uh, this privilege is right at our fingertips. And yet so much is not at our fingertips. So much understanding so much wisdom, 
uh, is far from us and how we need the gift of your spirit to be poured out upon us to refresh and illuminate us and help us to perceive with greater clarity the things that we will be reflecting on this evening. So we thank you for him and we ask that uh, he would unite us more closely with our Lord Jesus this evening as we reflect on uh, our relationship with him and what it means for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening, what I, what I really want to talk about is spectacularly wonderful news. And it is also, I found, one of the hardest things to explain. Uh, every time I try and explain this, I get to the point where I, I sort of think I've finished and I think that wasn't very clear or that wasn't very good or I talk to people afterwards and it becomes clear that, well, something went wrong somewhere. It, it makes me think that um, I should keep trying or maybe try harder <laughs> or find other ways of explaining it, which is what I'm actually going to try and do this evening. Um, it also makes me think that it probably is quite difficult for us to understand. Um, but understand that we must or try we must. And if I was to summarize what I want to say today, it is this. We are complete or mature already in Christ because Christ is complete or mature. We are mature in Christ because Christ is. To pad it out a bit more, uh, in Christ we have everything that he is. And one of the things that he is, is the mature and complete man. And therefore we share that status and experience with him. And that finds its place in the exposition of this uh, framework for understanding and seeking to get better at the task of growing in Christian maturity in the third paragraph of the summary I've tried to give. Those of you who've been around the last few weeks or who came to the men's discipleship uh, a few weeks ago will remember this handout. This was my two-page summary. I almost never do this, write out what I'm going to say and then give it to everybody. It makes me feel slightly naked as a preacher. You know, somebody, everyone can see your sermon notes. It's, the thought of a naked preacher is now going through your minds and distracting you in all kinds of unseemly ways. Please try and put that thought out of your mind. Thank you. Yeah, sorry about that, Samuel. Um, uh, what I tried to do here was to... Um, Articulate an alternative either to giving up or just continually banging our head against the brick wall of failed growth in maturity. We very often run into times in our lives or issues in our lives where we don't feel we're actually making any progress as Christians. And the answer and the question arises, well, why is that? And is there something that we could see or something that we could do which would help us to explore this? task of growing in Christ-likeness and maturity more faithfully. That's my attempt to summarize it. And what we're doing today is looking in detail at the third paragraph. Uh, I've already said the first paragraph, the Christian life can be viewed as a pursuit of pursuing maturity in Christ. And the second paragraph, that that is best understood as just a broad, all-embracive vision of Christ-likeness. And we talked um, last time about Solomon, remember, as the... Um, one of the greatest Adams of the Old Covenant era, who 
exemplified himself many of the characteristics of mature manhood. And he's vastly and infinitely surpassed by Christ, who is the subject of the third paragraph, to which I invite you now to give your attention. I'm going to read it. Scripture teaches that this maturity, this, um, what Scripture sometimes translates it as perfection, completeness, is found in Christ. It is his in the first instant because he possesses and exhibits it perfectly as the perfect man, the last Adam. It is ours by his grace because he has bestowed it upon us as a gift by the Spirit. We are called to make it increasingly ours by striving to live repentant and faithful lives animated by the Spirit. And we are assured that we may expect to make meaningful, significant progress towards increasing maturity if we do so. So those last four clauses in that final long sentence, uh, I'm going to be focusing on the first two of those. The, the, The third and fourth we'll come to subsequently. But basically what we're trying to say is Jesus already has this mature fullness of completed, perfected human life. That's what he is. He is the mature, perfect, complete, perfected human. And therefore we have it too. And it's that that I found so very difficult to explain and articulate and avoid confusing people about, and therefore I'm going to try again. And what I want to do is first um, begin, really, with um, a summary of this um, perspective from John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, I've got the the first volume of the two-volume work here. Some of um, my Bible and theology students get heart palpitations when they see this because they think I'm going to bash them over the head with it, uh, which I'm not going to do. But this might be Calvin's finest moment, a couple of paragraphs I want to share with you. And it's interesting, Calvin describes his institutes in 1,200 pages of theology as an introduction to the Bible. He says you should read this first so that when you get to the Bible, you understand what it's talking about. He literally says that, not quite in those words, but if you read in the preface and the introduction, I think it's the letter to the King of France, I think, or maybe it's the introduction. So I'm going to start with that to try and give you the big picture of where we're going. And then if you go over the page, um, after a brief biblical illustration, which might, might help, I want to explore in detail the letter to the Hebrews. Because that, it seems to me, sets out the clearest one book picture of Christ's maturity and what that means for him, and therefore our maturity and what that means for us. And I will probably fail like I have failed many times before. I feel more inadequate even than normal this evening at trying to capture what I want to talk to you about. But we'll try, and by God's grace, you might make some progress. All right, so. In pursuit of this understanding of what it means that Christ is mature and perfect, and therefore we are, consider this paragraph from Calvin's Institutes. It comes at the start of book three. There are four books in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Roughly speaking, they go Father, Son, Spirit, Church. So the works of the Father, creation and providence and revelation and so on. The works of the Son, redemption, basically. And the question that's hanging over everybody by the end of book two is, that's all very well, 
Jesus has done all this. Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised. Jesus has been justified in his resurrection. Jesus has been glorified. Jesus is the son. Jesus has in himself every blessing from the father. How on earth do we get those from him? And as you turn the page into book three, chapter one, section one, Calvin starts to answer the question. The answer is, well, father, son, spirit. The spirit unites us with Christ so that everything that he has becomes ours. And he does so by creating in us faith, which is a relationship with Jesus. Faith in this context is best understood as what our relationship with Christ looks like from our perspective. Let me read this and then try and explain how this is cashed out and what Calvin says. We must now examine this question. This is the very first thing he writes at the start of book three. You've got all the Jesus has done it all stuff in book two. We must now examine this question. How do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son? Well, that's a good question. How do we get what Jesus has? Hey, come on in, guys. Not only for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men. And the problem that we have, um, please do just grab a couple of seats here. There's one, two, and you can shift them around. And Calvin, find a seat for your mum and then you're, yeah, great. The problem that we have to deal with is addressed in the next sentence. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. And I don't think we even realize that that's true. I think commonly the way we think of salvation, quote unquote, is that Jesus has done a bunch of stuff and then he sort of gives it to us. Uh, Jesus um, has done a bunch of things and then he says, well, I forgive you. Or... Um, Jesus has done a bunch of things and then he says, well, that's atoned for your sins. Or Jesus has been raised from the dead and then somehow we're going to be raised from the dead as well. And Calvin's point here is that's not true. That's not even possible. If Jesus was over there and we're over here, nothing that he's done can do anything. In order for any of this that Jesus has done to benefit us, Calvin continues, next sentence. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had, look closely, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. Calvin realizes that the before we can receive anything from Jesus, we must first have a relationship of intimacy with him, which is described in these terms. He is ours. We dwell within him. And he dwells within us. And then you start to think about it. Think about how our relationship with Christ is described in the scriptures. We are in Christ. In the farewell discourse in John's gospel, Christ is in us. Paul says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Um, And there are many other biblical images of the same relationship. Consider some of these. For this reason, he is called our head, Ephesians 4.15. Why is he called our head? Well, because the head is attached to the body. And what the head gets, the body gets. If the head is justified, the body is justified. If the head suffers, 
Well, Paul says, if one part suffers, the whole body suffers. Referring to the church. Same is true in relation to Christ. If the head is complete, mature, oh, so is the body. Next illustration. He's called our head, that's the first, and the firstborn among many brethren, Romans 8.29. Brotherhood is another illustration of how we're related to Christ. And you know in biblical terms, the brother in this sense doesn't distinguish male and female. It just has to do with intimacy and familial closeness. So you share in what your brother or your sister has. You might share the same bedroom. Um, you certainly share the same food if you're eating in the same house like you do from your parents. We also, in turn, are said to be engrafted into him. Romans 11, that's the image of a tree or a vine. Think of John 15, you've got the same image. And if the tree dies, the branches are going to die. But if the branches are joined to the tree, the branches will get whatever the tree gets. That's the whole point in John 15 and in Romans 11. We receive as branches in the vine whatever it is that Jesus has. And we are said to put on Christ, Galatians 3. There the image is clothing. So what's that all about? Well, um, how, how do you know who the pastors are on Sunday morning? How, yeah, robes, collar. How do you know who the pastors are on Wednesday night? Yeah, good question. Okay, we'll come. Maybe we'll talk about that another time. But, but clothing marks people out as distinct. And it certainly does in Scripture, doesn't it? How does Jacob designate his favorite son i mean it's probably a slightly unwise thing to do give him clothing yeah why are you all so worried that david took goliath's armor and put it in his tent after he'd finished killing him yeah because what do you want that clothing for david yeah it's a bit bit, bit nervy why do you think it is that david snips off a corner of saul's robe because one day he's going to be king he's going to need that robe but he doesn't want to take it from him. He wants to show that he could have taken it off him and killed him, but he didn't. He just snipped the corner of his robe. And he's already been dethroned as king because in chapter 16, God said, well, I've rejected Saul. So it makes kind of sense that David would say, look, see? Anyway, so clothing, a branch in the vine, um, being brothers in a family, uh, the head of the body. There are many other biblical illustrations of the same thing. Marriage is the most obvious one that we've not mentioned, the closeness and interdependence of marriage. But there are many others. For, as I have said, all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. And I think this is, we, we, it doesn't dawn on us, I've said this already, it doesn't dawn on us this is actually true. We have a kind of transactional view of our salvation in Christ sometimes. We don't even call it salvation in Christ, we just call it our salvation. And salvation is a kind of thing that we've got from Jesus. Jesus is over there, Jesus died for us, Jesus rose for us, now he's given us this thing called salvation. That's just not how the Bible portrays things. And Calvin, who's so soaked in scriptural ways of thinking, perceives this in Paul and in the Gospels, and he says, I'll read it again, all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. We have an intimacy of relationship with Jesus which precedes and is the foundation of everything else that we have. And because of that relationship, we have everything that he has. It is true that we obtain this by faith. 
Now, he's summarizing a lot here where he's going to go in the next few sections. I'm not going to read the whole of Calvin for you. This is the kind of thing we do for four or five months in the Bible and theology class to get through this section. So I'm not going to do it in 20 minutes. Um, But what he's hinting at here is this relationship between his Jesus, Jesus and me, that's so close that it's like a branch in the vine, husband and wife, me putting on Jesus as clothing. How, How do you know who Jesus is? Well, it's the one who's wearing Jesus. Who's the one? They're the ones who are close to Jesus. They put Jesus on. Um, from my perspective, subjectively, what I perceive is faith. Faith is what that relationship feels like from my perspective. If you imagine two people, um, I, if I'm taking an illustration, here's me and Samuel. So I don't have faith in Samuel. That's not what the relationship looks like from my perspective. As I look at Samuel, I I see a certain sense of humor, um, uh, T-shirts that entertain us all every Wednesday evening. And, and of course, we know your character and we have conversation with you and I love you as a brother and we're going to catch up and have lunch at some point. And we have all these aspects of our relationship. What does my relationship with Samuel look like from my perspective? It's all those experiences of Samuel that I have. What's the experience of Christ that I have by virtue of which I'm made one with him by the Spirit? The answer is faith, which is why we're justified by faith. On that footnote, uh, Jonathan Edwards' dissertation on justification by faith alone. If you ever get confused by anything I'm saying this evening, it's very short for Jonathan Edwards um, by his standards. It is spectacularly clear, beautiful. It saved me from many, many dozens of hours of confusion when I was a young seminarian and trying to understand what on earth all these new perspective scholars were supposed to be talking about. Suddenly I saw through the forest and saw the light emerging through the trees. So Jonathan Edwards, if you want a bit more on that. To sum up, thank you Calvin, we appreciate that. I attempt to clarify things. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. That is to say, another way of looking at this relationship that we have with Jesus is to say, um, rather than saying, from my perspective, it looks like I trust Jesus, if you look, so to speak, from the outside, we're um, filled with the same spirit. And therefore, we're one in some sense. The technical term, sometimes used by more modern Reformed theologians, actually Edwards uses the same term as well, is union with Christ. If you read um, Richard Barvink, no, 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 Herman Barvink or Richard Gaffin, I'm getting my, my Dutch-influenced theologians in a tangle. Um, Richard Gaffin, uh, Herman Barvink is a bit older. Um, they'll speak at great length about union with Christ. It just means relationship with Jesus, oneness with Jesus, unity with Jesus. It's affected by the Spirit. It's experienced by us as faith, and on its ground, we receive all the things that Jesus is and has. Okay. Let me pause there one second. Has any of that made a little bit of sense? Great. That's, thank you. Um, now, illustration from Calvin. To this also pertains what we taught in the previous book concerning his anointing. 
So the, he's just referring back to the previous book. Uh, so you go back about 150 pages and try and think, what on earth are you talking about, John? And here's the little section um, that I think he's referring to. Uh, now it is to be noted that the title Christ pertains to these three offices, that is, priest, king, and prophet. For we know that under the law, prophets as well as priests and kings were anointed with holy oil. Hence, the illustrious name of Messiah was also bestowed upon the promised mediator. Calvin, why on earth are we talking about Christ and anointing and Messiah? Well, what does Messiah mean? Yes, very good, Mr. Bennett. Anointed one. It comes from the Hebrew verb, Moshiach, uh, Mosah, sorry, which means just to anoint. Pour oil on the head off is what you did to priests and kings and prophets to make them priests and kings and prophets. And Christ, Christos, is just the Greek translation of the same word. So Christ just means the one who is anointed. And who's anointed under the old covenant? Well, priests and kings and prophets. So when Calvin's saying about the Holy Spirit being the bond by which Christ unites us with himself, he's saying, just remember what I wrote about the anointing that Jesus has. Jesus is one on whose head the anointing of the Spirit has come. How is that anything to do with us? Keep reading. Then this anointing was diffused from the head to the members. It's just a very tactile, almost visceral, concrete image. If you anoint the head of a priest, or a king, or a prophet, or a messiah, or Jesus with anything, that stuff that he gets anointed with flows down his um, head and face and his neck onto the collar of his robe, Psalm 133, and onto arms and legs and the rest of his body. What is the body of Christ exactly? The church. And so Calvin picks up this biblical image of anointing to express how it is that we are made one with Jesus by the Spirit who anointed Jesus. The oneness is akin to the kind of oneness that a person's arms and legs and chest and back and neck and shoulders have with his head when the head is anointed. That's how the anointing works. And if you want a really illuminating biblical illustration of this, I don't want to spend long on this. We could spend a long time on this. Um, the oil that was used to anoint under the Old Covenant was typically fragranced oil. And fragrances or smells are one of the vastly under-discussed images of Old Testament theology. If you look in Exodus 30, verses 22 to 38, uh, you can look there if you like, but no need to. I'll just describe it to you. There is a, um, a lengthy description of the uh, incense that is supposed to be used uh, to perfume the tabernacle and that is supposed to be uh, used uh, also for the um, anointing oil that is to be poured on holy people, like Aaron and his sons, the priests. So you've got a recipe for a smelly oil or a smelly incense, which is only to be used in holy things. And what happens if you use that incense anywhere else? What happens to you? Yeah. Thank you, Samuel. Uh, not literally executed, but you'd be cut off from the people. Because the, the fragrance of those holy things is, in Israel's life and worship, attached only to those things. So that the people of God learn that, oh yeah, holiness is found in the things that get anointed. 
and nowhere else. It attaches to those things. It's not for common use, it's special. Don't go putting it on yourself when you go out on a date with your boyfriend or your husband just because it smells nice. It's like, oh, that'd be nice. Not a good idea. Not be cut off from the people. This is for holy things only. And that image seems to be picked up in 2 Corinthians 2, which I do want you to turn to, because this is just another of those examples of the pervasiveness of biblical imagery. Um, where Paul says, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. How do I explain that? Scratching his head, searching around for an illustration. Oh, here's one. And through us spreads the fragrant, fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So the knowledge of Christ is depicted as a smell which is spread around by the apostles and the evangelists who preach the message of the gospel everywhere. Because now, the smell of the Holy One is spread wherever the gospel is heard and believed. Why is that? Well, because the, the Spirit, to whom the smelly anointing oil always pointed, is poured out on anyone who believes the gospel, which is preached by the messengers of Christ, who is the holy one who therefore has this fragrance about him and Paul even goes on to remark that um, the the same smell fragrance can be perceived by different people in different ways Um, uh, those who are being saved it is the fragrance of life those who are perishing it's the fragrance of death Uh, the devil doesn't like the smell of Jesus so I don't want to look at John 12 but that's when um, uh, Jesus feet are anointed uh, with oil, and the smell f- fills the whole house. And Anyway, it's another text we could look at. Anyway, so can you see what I've been trying to say so far? In, in biblical thinking, as it's summarized in these theological terms, uh, Christ is the recipient of every spiritual blessing, everything, and therefore we are, by virtue of our relationship with him, our union with him, which is created by the Spirit, likened to fragranced anointing oil, because the Spirit is the anointing that comes on Jesus, the Christ. And the anointing oil flows to us, well, the Spirit flows to us by virtue of our union with Christ, and we experience that union as faith. That, That is in theological terms with some biblical sprinklings. How to understand the sense in which Christ, the mature man, shares with us his maturity. Let me pause there. Any questions or comments so far? Because I want to go on then and explain the whole same thing from a slightly different perspective, which I think, well, I don't know whether it will be easier to understand. It's certainly different, and we'll shed some more light on it. But any comments or questions so far? Uh, Yes, Mrs. Herrera, yeah. Right, it's a very good question. Is this something that comes and goes, or is it that it's just because we're part of the church family, it's permanent? Um, I want to say yes, 
<laughs> to both. That is to say, um, those who are chosen from before the foundation of the world, um, on them the Spirit will be poured, and Jesus won't let any of his sheep go. And yet, it's true that sometimes we drift a little, or are faithless. Calvin says, prayer is the first exercise of faith. How many of us have been prayerless? If you don't talk to your husband for a month, what happens to your relationship with him? Well, you're still married, right? But you're, it's going to dry up a little bit, isn't it? And, and, and he'll come along to church and you're like, oh, something's yeah, it's a bit, bit odd in the house at the moment because it's like, you know, it'd be a horrible thing, wouldn't it? Living with a stranger. So there's a sense in which we have this positional status. But then there's also a sense in which the intensity of it can be increased or decreased. Now, um, uh, it is also true that... Um, now, Jesus speaks of uh, seed that's sown on the path and seed that's sown in good soil. So good soil, great, endures to the end. Path, well, never really believes at all. Never, never believes at all. Satan takes away the word. The seed among thorns and the seed on rocky ground, they both sprout up and sure looks like Christian commitment for a time and then it fades. And in Luke's version of the parable, he remarks, Jesus remarks that they believe for a while. So there's a kind of faith, a kind of relationship with Christ that some people have who tragically walk away from him. Um, now how, how you articulate that, um, to my mind it seems safest to articulate it in the kind of terms the Bible does. You, know, a, you can be a branch in the vine, but then you become fruitless and you get chopped off, thrown into the fire. That would be terrible. Remain in the vine. Um, uh, sim- and there are other similar ways of articulating the same thing. Um, uh, in Hebrews, it says that some people have received, um, uh, shared in the promised Holy Spirit, but then fall away. They've shared in something. Um, and maybe we've all known people who have seemed to have had some kind of relationship with Jesus and have turned away. I, I, I think that is a question worth thinking about. But um, for our purpose is thinking about um, how to approach the task of our walking with Christ. Well, you could walk with Christ right arm in arm with him. Or you could just kind of ignore him for a while. And if you do that, that's like you know a wife ignoring her husband for a while and then wondering why the relationship is a bit strained. Yeah. Still your husband, but Uh, and there is always that warning, you know. Um, that seed on rocky ground sure looked like it was growing up really impressively. So, does that help at all? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. So I, th- I think it, uh, in relation to that question, so sometimes on a day-to-day basis we sort of ebb hot and cold. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, let's not confuse our feelings with the actual reality of life. Can you see what I mean? I think some people are emotionally wired in such a way that they're very sensitive to um, very small things which make them feel distant from Jesus. And that feeling may not be, and often is not, consequential at all. You know, don't believe the devil when he says that Jesus doesn't love you. You believe what Jesus says. Um, it's one of the reasons, actually, why um, when Pastor Neil and I are leading worship, we verbally assure people of their forgiveness of sins. It's a kind of liturgical statement of reality. It doesn't matter how you feel. I don't care if you feel really wicked. And, and Jesus kind of doesn't care either. So, so let's, on the one hand, I do want to encourage all of us to be sensitive to the, the relational uh, reality of our walk with Christ. But I don't want us to be more sensitive to that than Jesus is and to react to the wrong things. Because um, that can cause all kinds of problems. So, thank you. That's a really re- helpful question. All right. Uh, flip over the page. Now, um, I've never tried to explain this aspect of the Bible's teaching in this way before. So this doesn't mean you're like a, a kind of guinea pig test bed. It means I'm trying to do a better job. <laughs> um, uh, the, the book of Hebrews is the place to go to understand this theme of Christ's maturity and ours. And you wouldn't know it just by looking at the book of Hebrews because most of the time um, the terms that are to do with um, maturity or becoming mature or uh, being mature are translated somewhere something different that may be translated perfect or perfection or to be made perfect. Um, I've given you the vocabulary there in small type at the top of the second page. Small type just to remind you that it doesn't matter if you don't want to read Greek transliterated into English. But the, the word is teleos, which means mature, or it's cognate teleo, which is the verb to become mature or to be mature, and teleotes, which is the noun, maturity. And those words appear like 15 times or something in the book of Hebrews, and they do so at crucial moments. You don't, don't always measure the importance of an idea just by how often the word appears in a book. And I want to take you through one, two, three, four passages of the book of Hebrews, which explain in different ways what this maturity is for Christ and what it means that he has bequeathed it to us. And I've got the text there, the bullet points, Hebrews 2, 5, 10, and 12. And in bold, just in case you want to kind of check in your, in your Bibles, I've highlighted the verses where the, those maturity words appear. So what we're going to do, you're going to really have to work so hard um, because I'm going to keep asking you questions to make sure you're following what I'm saying. Otherwise, I'm going to fear that you just drift off to sleep. So we're going to read through Hebrews 2, 5 to 18. And I'm going to ask you to help me work through and, and do work as hard as you can to follow the logic of what the apostle is saying, whichever apostle it is. Pastor Neil, do you think Paul wrote Hebrews? You do. You reckon? Yeah. I wish I could. I wish I could. Yeah. 
But can we talk about that sometime? John Owen agrees with Pastor Neil, England's greatest theologian, and Fort Worth's greatest theologian. That's pretty impressive, right? Um, okay, so Hebrews 2, verse 5. Now, Hebrews 2, verse 5. Um, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Right, I know, I'm going to need to introduce some of this. Um, the world to come is the world of which we are speaking, not the world off in the future, um, after the resurrection, but the world um, that has been inaugurated with the resurrection of Jesus and has finally come into being with the end of the old covenant order. This is the world of which we are speaking, this world. Now, this world has not been subjected to angels. Angels don't rule this world. Who rules this world? Ah, huh, that's a good question. And the author of Hebrews, Paul, or, or whoever, <laughs> Luke, uh, Apollos, as Peter Lighthawk calls him, Apollos, Luke, Paul. Um, the author, yeah, the spirit, yeah, says, and here's a clue, who rules the world? It has been testified somewhere, verse 6, who rules the world? Man, yeah, very good. Quote from which psalm? Psalm 8. Did I just tell you that? Sorry, I'm giving you the answers. Um, it has been testified somewhere, what is man? that you are mindful of him. This is the clue. It's not angels that rule the world. Because, Genesis 1, um, God gave man the charge to rule the world. And the era during which the world was ruled by angels began in Genesis 3 with the cherubim at the Garden of Eden, at the gate stopping men coming in, and ended with Christ's... Come, more on that in a second, right? Um, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Man was ruled by the angels for a little while. How do you know that? Oh, all kinds of little clues. Like, who was it who delivered the law to Moses? Angels. Act 7. Ah. God administered his rule through angels to men. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection to him. So now, everything has been put under his feet. Excellent. So now, do we see everything in subjection to human beings now? Can we see that? This is very so. No. Well, that's interesting, because that's exactly what it says in verse 8. Now, in putting everything under his feet, or in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Human beings control everything. But at present, we don't really see everything in subjection to him. What do we see? Verse 9. Can you see the logic of the argument as it's developing? But we do see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned. Remember, the ruling all creation theme is coming back now. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Why is he crowned with glory and honor? Somebody apart from Samuel. Yeah, because of his suffering, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. Look at it. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It somehow seems appropriate, Hebrews says, that the one who is crowned as the ruler of all creation should be the one who suffered death, or a particular kind of death. The, one, the kind of death that means he tastes death for everyone else. Maybe it's the kind of death 
by which he liberates everybody else from their death so that they can rule with him. That would be quite neat, wouldn't it? Because then it would sort of fit with the logic of what he's saying. For, and then verse 10 says exactly the same thing. For it was fitting, it was appropriate that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's the father, in bringing many sons to glory, he wants many sons to be glorious, which means crowned, ruling, because crowned with glory. Being glorious in this section means to be ruling, to be fulfilling the call that we had in Genesis 1, to be like Solomon but better, to be mature. It's fitting that he, in bringing many sons to glory, Sarah and Samuel and Mrs. Fraser and Pastor Neil and even me, making us rulers, should make the founder of their salvation mature. Teleon, perfect. Have you all got perfect in your translations? Yeah, it says mature. Through big one, ESV, ESV, Um, first edition. (laughs) There are about four editions of the ESV. Don't get me started. Um, Okay, should make the founder of their salvation mature through suffering. Now, just pause there one second. You've had seven, six verses or something. See what he's saying so far. Um, God hasn't subjected this world to angels. He subjected it to people. Well, he subjected it to angels for a little while, but then it people rule the world now. Well, how do we rule the world? We don't see everything ruled by men. We don't rule the world particularly well, do we? What do we see? Ah, we do see Jesus crowned with glory in his resurrection through the suffering of death so that he might bring other sons, male and female, to share in that glorious rule of his through suffering. That's the implication. For he who sanctifies, verse 11, and those who are sanctified have one origin. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then he has these quotes from a couple of Psalms. The thought here is that we do what our brother did. We're going to rule with him. We share in his glory. Well, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Maybe he's going to help us through this. If you get through those um, quotes a little bit. Verse 14, since therefore the children, us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So that's why his death is significant here. What's he done? Well, what does a ruler do? What should Adam have done in the garden exactly in Genesis chapter 3 if he was going to rule appropriately, protect his wife, Step on the serpent's head. Thunk. There we are. Yeah, that'd be good. Well, that took a long time, didn't it? Hmm. You missed that, Adam. So the whole of human history from that point on up to Jesus, in one sense, is all about waiting for somebody who can do what you jolly well should have done. How did he do it? Well, he didn't go and splat the serpent's head. He got his own head splatted with the crown of glory with which he was crowned in his death. He, he suffers the head wound by which he liberates people like us who deserve the head wound from the death that we deserve. Which is why it says, verse 15, and deliver those who through fear of death, the death that we deserve, were subject to lifelong slavery. 
for sure it's not angels he helps. Like, he's not, he's not interested in helping angels. And angels don't need any help anyway, because they're either not fallen or fallen and not going to be redeemed. They're not like us. Jesus isn't going to redeem them. Um, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, uh, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Final important point, verse 18, because he himself has suffered when tempted. And this is profoundly important when you're thinking about the more difficult periods of your lives, which you will all have if you haven't had them already. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So this Jesus, with whom we're united by faith, who through, well, has, through his suffering, achieved maturity. He knows what it's like to suffer, and he knows what it's like to suffer temptation, and therefore he's able to help us in both those experiences. So we're not, it's not that we're united to somebody who's just sort of watching to see how we get on. This relationship is one, I, I think, sometimes the most illuminating illustration of this is the oldest. It's walking along the way one of the earliest descriptions of the early followers of Jesus, followers of the way, walking along the path with Jesus. So, Jesus is the gloriously crowned, mature ruler of all creation. He's attained that status by his suffering and his death, and he's he's therefore able to help us who share in that rule over all creation with him. So all the things we were talking about last time, all of the aspiration all the solomonic aspirations of maturity don't be surprised if you're led to some of those accomplishments through hardship but don't forget if you are that jesus has been there and is there with you whether the hardship is just suffering or temptation to sin he's been there done that in the case of temptation, not done that. So, second, let's flip over the page to Hebrews 5. Remember what we're trying to do? We're, we're um, trying to flesh out uh, the somewhat impressionistic picture that we have of Christ being mature, and through this faith union, spirit-wrought relationship with us, sharing that maturity with us and bequeathing that maturity on us. What does that mean for him? What does it mean for us? Uh, Hebrews 5 and 6 has um, probably the most clear and potent um, exposition of this. Let's begin in chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, chapter 5, verse 7, what did Jesus do? Somebody help me out. Make sure. Prove that you're reading. Yeah, go on, Simon. Yeah, vehement cries and tears. Thank you, Samuel. Really heartfelt, loud cries and tears to him who's able to save him from death. Maybe that's a reference. Is that a reference to the Garden of Gethsemane, perhaps? It makes most sense. Maybe there's other things as well. Um, And he was heard because of his reverence. Being a son, literally. Um, It could be although, it could be because... Um, it's just a participle in Greek. So it's being a son. He, this, and this is something that I remember the first time I 
realised that Jesus did this. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made mature became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Just look at that again. What did Jesus have to learn? What does it say? He learned obedience. Yikes. Why does that sound strange to us? Maybe it doesn't sound strange to you. We grew up thinking that he always obeyed and it was easy. Did he always obey? Yeah, let's rescue our doctrine of the atonement and the sinlessness of Christ from where it was teetering on the edge of something terrible. Um, um, yeah, I know. Um, and it comes past nearly in five seconds. We need to work out how he can have learned obedience without ever disobeying. Pastor Neil, go on, throw something in here. We tend to think that when we learn obedience, it's because we're leading disobedience unto obedience. Christ would go from obedience to obedience and glory to glory. So we recreate Christ in our image rather than viewing Christ in his image. Oh, perfect. Did you all get that at home? <laughs> I hope you did. I'm not going to try and repeat it. Um, I mean, that. It's a really interesting thought, isn't it, that we, we, your phrase, what was it, we recreate Christ in our image, imagining that he's like us. He, he starts disobedient and then has to figure out how to tidy his bedroom. Whereas what actually happens is on Monday the 12th of October, he's perfectly obedient, aged six years old. And the next day, his mum says, okay, hey Jesus, or Joshy, um, I've got, I've got a new job for you to do today. He's like, okay, mum. And as he's exposed to those new circumstances, he has to learn obedience in those new circumstances. And then, you know, he begins his ministry. He goes back to his hometown <laughs> and he's preaching on the Sabbath day and everyone's like, oh, wow, isn't this, isn't this the carpenter's son? Yeah. And they despise him. And, and Think of all the ways that Jesus... All the different circumstances that Jesus finds himself in are new circumstances. And he has to learn obedience in them. And he learns that obedience through what he suffered. Yeah, Pastor Neil. If I may add. Yeah, yeah. When Christ's hour came, it was the hour of his betrayal, crucifixion. That hour had not come when he was 12. So for him to have done that at the age of 12 or 15... That wouldn't have been obedience. So he came to that point, and we can trace that he learned obedience. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's and it's it's a it's a uh, fresh, I think. It was for me. I remember the first time I started thinking about this years ago. It's a fresh way of thinking about the experience of the life of Jesus to think that he had to grow up. And experience these new circumstances. And you're exactly right. It's such a sharp way of putting it. He wasn't mature when he was 12. Yeah? He was morally perfect, but not mature. Yeah. Reminds me of uh, being faithful in small things and being forgiven more. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I'd never seen that link before. But yeah, being faithful in small things. So Jesus is the one who's faithful with uh, one minor and gets given one city, then faithful with two and gets given two, and then. He's, and then he inherits the earth in the end. Exactly. Yes. 
And it's a gradual progress of learning obedience through what he suffered. See that theme again? So all the stuff we're talking about on this beige sheet, the, the process of trying to grow in mature Christ-likeness, suffering keeps popping up, doesn't it? So it's almost like you'd expect Jesus to say, well, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. Yeah, hardship seems to be the way in a fallen world, even for a sinless man, of growing up. Um, yeah, Todd. Yeah, the age is specified. Yeah. 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 And uh, I mean, the correspondences between sacrificial animals and, and humans and, and Israel and ultimately Christ. And the language of sacrificial animals, um, complete, uh, um, uh, without blemish. It's the same word group as a kind of Hebrew equivalent. But yeah. it's the road to sacrifice. Right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So you would think here's this fully mature animal, spotless, without defect. Yes. Now it's ready to die, yeah. When it's reached mature perfection. Um, it's like, I can't remember, that verse in Isaiah that always throws me. Um, the righteous perish and no one ponders it in their heart. Devout men are taken away and no one considers that the righteous is taken away to be spared from evil. So when you get to a certain point, just where you could start being useful <laughs> and you're taken away. Because it's like you've done, your, you've done your job now. I don't know whether that's necessarily so closely related, but it, sometimes... Anyway, okay, so that's Jesus. Um, and having been made perfect, or having been made complete, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Um, Melchizedek thing, let's not get into Melchizedek, because otherwise we'll never get out of Melchizedek. Um, we'll, we'll talk about Melchizedek some other time, when Pastor Neil's up here with me. Help. Anyway, verse 11. This is hilarious. I love the, the sense of humor of this guy. Paul, Apollos, Luke, whoever. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. <laughs> yes, kind of like a preacher blaming his congregation. Anyway. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, you clueless bunch of... Pay attention, will you? Seems to be what he's saying. For anyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of God since he is a child. See? Opposite of mature. But solid food is for the mature. See what he's contrasting? He's saying, oh, I'd love to talk about this. And you need it, but the problem is you really, you kind of need to go back to being breastfed again because you're, that's what you're behaving like, children. So what are you expecting him to say? Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. This is the the direction of the whole book of Hebrews. In one sense, it's a positional thing. It's to do with their status. He's saying, let's leave behind the elementary things, the elementary principles of old covenant worship, 
and go on to maturity of life in Christ as believers in him. Don't go back to worshipping in the temple just because it's easy and you won't get beaten up for it. Let's stick with Jesus, which is what really the whole book of Hebrews is about. It's an exhortation to these Hebrew, hence the title, Christians, not to relinquish Christ and go back to temple worship because you won't get beaten up in school for doing that. But then there's also the expression of that maturity in our lives. Let's go on to maturity and actually living mature Christian lives. And that's what you get more of in the third and fourth passages in particular. If this is about our status primarily and therefore about how we should live, well, what about how we should live in more detail? Let's look at the next um, passage, Hebrews 10. You see what we're doing? We're just working through, picking up all these moments where the vocabulary of maturity pops up and it's to do with Jesus and what he's achieved and how he's achieved it and it's to do with us and what we've received from him and how we are to live that out and experience it. So Hebrews chapter 10 um, calls attention to the theme that I'd mentioned previously about the contrast between the old covenant law and its structures and worship and religious life and the new covenant in Christ. Chapter 10 verse 1. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make mature, to lay on, those who draw near. The old covenant, what's wrong with the old covenant? It can't produce mature men. And you might think, is that like a practical thing? Like they were all really immature as believers in the Lord? Perhaps, maybe it's more to do with the fact that that was the era of law which was administered by angels before the coming of Christ rather than the era of the new covenant administered by Christ himself during which, chapter 2, we're no longer subject to angels. Now the creation is subject to a man who has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So the law can't bring men to maturity because the mature man hasn't arrived yet. That's verse 1. Skip down to verse 11. I'm just trying to remember where these um, phrases are. Okay, now, so, um, speaking of the law, um, we turn to the ordinances of worship prescribed by the law. And in verses 2 to 10, um, he's talking about and contrasting the old covenant sacrifices with the sacrifice of Christ. And you remember this, there's a contrast um, uh, between the sacrifices of the law that happened all the time and there's a reminder of sins because you have to keep going on and on and on and then the one sacrifice of Christ there's a contrast there well then um, verse 11 picks this theme up Uh, every priest stands because don't sit down no chairs in the tabernacle you never finished your job daily at his sacrifices offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down enthroned finished there's a chair in the heavenly throne room there were no chairs in the temple no chairs in the tabernacle because they weren't for man crowned with glory and honor but the heavenly throne room has chairs for jesus to sit in a chair the same chair as throne as the father you look in revelation there's one throne and the father and uh, god and the lamb are in the same throne obviously because trinity yeah so 
Um, where were we? Um, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has made mature for all time those who are being sanctified. So this is another perspective on what it means to be mature. To be mature means to have experienced the effects of Christ's sacrifice. Now, can you see why I insisted right at the beginning of this evening that we are mature in Christ? Like, have you been cleansed by the blood of Jesus or not? Like, that's not a, that's not a difficult question. So you, you are one with him. You are brought to maturity, brought to perfection, completeness in that sense, in him. He's perfected by one offering, or brought to maturity by one offering, all those who are being sanctified. Um, the Holy Spirit bears witness to this, and then there's a quote from um, Jeremiah. And then it's fascinating how he turns that um, recognition of our status into an exhortation. But it's not like a kind of beat-up exhortation, like you should jolly well be grateful for what Jesus has done for you. You miserable sinner, how dare you be so evil now that Jesus has died to you? He says, no, no, no. Given the glorious status that you have, how are you going to live now? Look at verse 19 onwards. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, and then there's a bunch of imperatives, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some of those Hebrew Christians who are going back to Old Covenant Judaism. Yeah, But all the more as we see the day approaching. So just analyze this. What should we do? Let us draw near to God, hold fast to the confession of our hope, uh, cling to the confession of the Lordship of Christ. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. It's a, it's a really intriguing emphasis in Hebrews on our dependence upon each other for uh, encouragement towards growth in maturity. It's something I highlighted at the beginning of this uh, handout, the other handout, back three weeks ago. Let us consider how to stir one another up to the good works which will reflect the mature status we have as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. You are a purified man, a purified woman. Now, how are you going to stir up the man sitting next to you to faithfulness that befits the purity that you both have in Christ? That seems to be the, the thinking. And then he carries on. Okay, finally, Hebrews 12, and then we've got a few minutes at the end to just try and pick up any of these scattered questions, which no doubt will be around. Okay, um, this comes after, well, I think, I think this is Nicole's favorite or second favorite chapter. I think Romans 8 is her favorite chapter in the Bible. I'm going to embarrass her now, but she's not here, so that's okay. Um, that's not okay, but um, I won't embarrass her. Um, when she was a, a teenager, she, she read a Gideon's Bible that had been given to her at school. She read it secretly because she was a Roman Catholic and apparently she thought you weren't supposed to do that. 
She used to read Romans 8 all the time. Then she discovered Hebrews 11, I think that's how the story goes. And this is the long list of the heroes in the faith. Whoever thought that faith was the new thing about the new covenant really needed to read Hebrews 11. Anyway, um, Abraham and Moses and all these other people. And then he runs out of space and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets and all those. And this is a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. And then he says, chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And second, run with endurance the race set before us. So these two imperatives kind of flow together from these examples. Leave the sin to one side run the race that's set before us. Looking to, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and, not perfecter, one who makes mature our faith. So can you see here the picture that's being set out? Here, rather than the image of walking along the way with Christ, or clothed with Christ, or you're the arm and Christ has been anointed, or you're married to Christ, or he's the head and you're the body, or He's the foundation of the temple and you're one of the stones in it. There's a different image now. Now it's like, well, there's Jesus. Looking to Jesus. And let's run as fast as we can and as long and as hard as we can the race that he has just run before us. It's, a, it's another complementary but distinct image to depict how we are to strive towards maturity. In other words, you, the, the simple truth is, um, it, okay, it is encouraging to, to look at Jesus and contemplate him by your side, yeah? But truth be told, he's quite a long way ahead of you as well, isn't he? So when you get to the end of this letter, that's... Is that the final? It's not quite the final. It's the final really significant, I think, kind of structurally significant mention of this frame, this phrase, uh, maturity. The vision that's left is of, he's 50 yards ahead in a 1600 yard race and you've only been going 100 yards or so. You better catch up. Come on. So we strive for that which we have been given. And these two um, perspectives, they, sometimes they feel like they strain against each other. Somehow we have to find a way of making them live happily next to each other. So we can say simultaneously, he's by our side, sustaining us, and we are to strive after him. Alrighty. Um, we have a few minutes left. And I'm, I'm conscious that, that has been the mother of all scattergun Bible studies tearing right through some quite complex texts of scripture any um comments or thoughts or questions that you want to raise uh, anything that wasn't clear that you think that or just didn't make sense or any thoughts that occurred to you that might be helpful for others yeah mr robinson i just i think it's worth repeating you already said it all of these verses that you've given to us cluster around Yeah. And the exhortations to perseverance and others. 
mathematically connected, so therefore the words are all intertwined, just like you said. Jesus has gone before us and has become the mature man. Therefore, yeah, you know, yeah. Let your salvation go. Yes, yes. Therefore, stir one another. Therefore, do not lay aside the yeah, yeah. congregation. Yes. Because it was the easier path is a clue to what I think I'm sure I'm, I'm sure you're getting at, which is this path is the path brick the work path to curse. Yeah, yeah. Because that was Jesus' path, and that's the path and that, that's precisely why it's tempting to leave it. Yes. Because it's hurt. Yes. And we don't want that. None of us. Mm. But that's that's precisely the path that that Christ took towards his glorification. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a surprisingly profound question to say. So why why did Jesus have to suffer? Because you can sort of answer that question at a basic level. Oh yeah, yeah, he had to suffer the punishment due to us for our sins. But you think yeah yeah, yeah okay why? And then you say or oh, justice and so on. But then you, if you get behind that, yeah, I mean those are right answers and good answers, very important answers. But it's as though there's something built into creation as it is fallen that entails suffering. And so how are you going to master creation? And the answer is actually by, by suffering. So, so you, you, that's true in relation to work. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. In pain you shall bring forth children. It's also true in... Christ's redemption of the world. Um, you, can, you can kind of imagine hypothetical Bibles and hypothetical universes in which redemption was accomplished by some other route. But given the fall and the, necess- the, the effects of sin to bring suffering, it, living in the right way within the world actually is about having the right attitude to hardship and suffering in, in one form or another. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, Mrs. Bennett. Um, this gives us hope when we're suffering. Sometimes our suffering is because of our own foolishness, and sometimes it's, it just happens to us, but it, it gives some, uh, some real value, maybe, to we yeah. can learn obedience. If Jesus learned obedience through suffering, and he was actually sinless, and yeah. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And and the, the primary question probably shouldn't be, am I suffering because I've done something wrong? I mean, that's a question that sometimes people ask. And Okay, fair enough. But if the answer was yes, what would you do? If the answer was no, what would you do? Well, the answer to those two questions are the same thing. <laughs> you have to find a way of learning obedience through your suffering. Now, I, I grant that the character of that obedience might... And the, precisely what you'd learn might depend on whether you thought you were a victim or sinner at this point. If you got yourself into this mess by your own foolishness, that's different from if you're really a passive victim of somebody else's 
wickedness, a, a victim of violence, for example. But nonetheless, what, if you're, there you are in hospital, either been beaten up or you've been doing something silly and you've hurt yourself, what do you do now? And that experience of suffering is not pointless. Um, even though you sort of think, hypothetically, it was avoidable, in God's sovereignty it wasn't, and here's, here you are. So, um, Yeah. No, nothing is... Somehow we, we can affirm that we shouldn't have got into certain situations, and yet those situations aren't wasted. Joseph is the best. Joseph is the best example. Like, what a muppet! I mean, I, I, I get he's a great guy. By the end of um, end of Genesis, he's great. But I think he undergoes the most one of the most dramatic processes of growth and maturity in the Bible because he, he does start out as, you know, what brother does that? I had a dream, and uh, there were these sheaves, <laughs> you know. Like, Joseph, that's so crass, you know. Uh, now, I, I know the dream comes true, and in part that's the irony of the situation, but I do think he, he is a, a, an irritating little brother. Anybody got an irritating little brother? And he, by the end, he grows up tremendously in maturity, and at the end, he can say in chapter 50, verse 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And some of the evil that they meant was a consequence of his being an irritating little brat when he was 14. So it, all of this stuff, our foolishness puts us in situations that God then says, right, let's use this now. Yeah, absolutely. And in one sense, just the recognition of that sets you free from just the why, why, why questions. Why am I in this, why am I in this situation? Why, why, why am I having this relationship with my friend? Why, why, am I, why has my job worked out like this? Why, 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 why? And you think, okay, well, here we are. Let's, um, what's the phrase? Run with perseverance the race set before us. And um, we're done. Thank you, Zoomers, for your patience. Thank you all for being here. Um, next week, we do not. Thank you. I was looking at my fellow pastor and just getting confirmation. No Bible study next week because it's Easter week and we'll have a few other activities, well, um, uh, times of worship and prayer during the week, um, which I strongly encourage you to come to if you're able to make it. We won't have Bible study. Um, and, um, yeah, otherwise, have the rest of a great evening, rest of a great week. Um, and I look forward to seeing you all soon. Let's pray together and then we can go. Merciful Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus the mature man crowned with glory and honor through the suffering of death. Thank you for the gift of maturity in him and for the clarity of this call to pursue that maturity in increasing measure, to strive after it, to leave behind the childish elementary ways and to run with perseverance the race set before us. Teachers, we pray to do that and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, everybody. God bless. Bye.